Luke. Open your Bibles to Luke chapter 8. Uh, we've arrived in another uh, just incredible passage today. I have been rocked by this passage all week preparing it. Um, it's very challenging. I've got a lot to say on this. So I'm hoping to get you out of here in time so that any of you have a bird in the oven, it won't be overdone. So let's read the passage. We're going to begin in verse 26. It's all the way to verse 39. Remarkable story recorded by Dr. Luke this morning. Read with me, beginning in verse 26. Then they sailed to the country of the Gerasenes, which is opposite Galilee. When Jesus had stepped out on land, there met him a man from the city who had demons. For a long time he had worn no clothes, and he had not lived in a house but among the tombs. When he saw Jesus, he cried out, fell down before him, and said with a loud voice, What have you to do with me, Jesus, son of the Most High God? I beg you, do not torment me. For he had commanded, Jesus had commanded the unclean spirit to come out of the man. For many a time it had seized him. He was kept under guard and bound in chains and shackles, but he would break the bonds and be driven by the demons into the desert. Jesus then asked him, what is your name? And he said, Legion, for many demons had entered him. And they begged him not to command them to depart into the abyss. Now a large herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside, and they begged them him to let them go into them. So he gave them permission. Then the demons came out of the man and into the pigs, and the herd rushed down the steep bank into the lake and drowned. When the herdsmen saw what had happened, they fled and told it in the city and in the country. Then people went out to see what had happened, and they came to Jesus and found the man with whom the demons had gone out, sitting at the feet of Jesus, clothed and in his right mind. And they were afraid. They were afraid. And those who had been told this, how the demon-possessed man had been healed, then all the people of the surrounding country of the Gerasenes asked him to depart from them, for they were seized with great fear. So Jesus got into the boat and returned. The man from whom the demons had gone begged that he might be with him, but Jesus sent him away saying, return to your home and declare how much God has done for you. And he went away proclaiming throughout the whole city how much Jesus had done for him. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray again. Gracious Heavenly Father, uh, we thank you. We thank you for this very, very challenging and difficult story. Holy Spirit, I just pray today that you would give us clarity. You, you, would, you would teach us from this text. We would hear from you. We would, we would not imagine, but we would see Jesus for who he is and ourselves for who we are as represented by all of these people in this story. Lord, I just pray for your blessings as we unpack this today, and I pray this in Jesus' worthy name. Amen. Um, I think most of you probably are aware of this, but skeptics in our world and culture today are many. Uh, skeptics and atheists, they have kind of like a top 10 list. Uh, they have a top 10 list of, of, of objections to Christianity. It, there's probably a lot more, but there, there's at least a top 10 list. 
Um, Tim Keller, one of my favorite pastors and authors, wrote a book years ago called Reason for God. Great book. He highlights in that book seven of the top ten. And he really kind of boils it down to three that he suggests are really the, 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 the real clinchers, the, the ones that we really as Christians have to deal with if we want to be, be able to give a defense for the truth that lies within us. In other words, be apologists for the faith. In other words, be able to fa- faithfully share Jesus with skeptics and atheists, unbelievers. He boils it down to these three. Number one, the problem of exclusivity. You say that Jesus is the only way? That's number one. Number two, the problem of evil and suffering. And number three, the problem of creation versus evolution. Go figure, right? I mean, he's a pastor, uh, now retired from his job and, uh, after planting Redeemer Presbyterian in Manhattan. And, and for years, I mean, his church has just grown and exploded because he has actually has really answered these questions well. But he would agree that after 25, 30 years of teaching these things, of speaking to skeptics and atheists, he would agree that the number one, Number one has become in our culture and world today the problem of evil. Anyone experience that? The problem of evil and suffering, right, from the perspective of the atheist or the skeptic. And many of you know, I've, I related this recently, that I was invited up to the philosophy of religion class taught by an atheist professor at Quest University. It's ironic, but it's true, right? And it was awesome. He, he invited me up, and I spoke to the class, and there were two questions that hit the floor after I tried to answer the question that I was given to answer in 30 minutes. And the question was why I should believe in God. 30 minutes. <laughs> it's a challenge, you know. I'm not suggesting that I was overly successful, but did my best. Two questions that were raised afterwards, creation versus evolution, obviously. As an objection, I mean, Christians believe this, right? I mean, how with science and on and on. But no question. The second was the problem of evil and suffering in our world today. And so the key to answering these questions, I believe, is for us to recognize three things as Christians. Number one, it's a real problem. The problem of evil and suffering in our world today is a real problem for Christians too. When you see evil happen to children and to women and to others in our culture, are are you not at some point in time as a Christian going, God, where are you? It's a problem. We need to own up to that. It's also, number two, a theological question. Not just a philosophical question. It's a theological question about the knowledge of who God is. There's a question there that's important. Thirdly, we as Christians need to understand that we need to look for ways to expose the contradictions that skeptics and atheists have, and that's important. So I want to deal with that one mostly before we look at this and unpack this passage, which this is really about today because I think it'll also handle question number one and question number two that we need to recognize. So first, let's consider the problem of evil in our present day today. The objection then goes something like this from skeptics or atheists or maybe some suffering Christians. They might say that there is a God and and that if there is a God and that He is good and that He is all-loving, great, I get that, but there's also evil and suffering in the world. So then the question goes something like this. How can you expect me to believe in a God who allows evil and suffering in the world? So put another way, the objection then is this. I cannot or will not believe in a God who allows evil and suffering that does exist. That, that we know does exist. We, we see it. Evil and suffering exist. So I, 
if you tell me that your God is all loving and all good, I'm not going to believe in that God if He's allowing this to happen. So ultimately, the, their argument is, if, is this. There is evil and suffering. We all agree to that in the world. And since a good and loving God is incompatible with allowing evil and suffering, so their argument would go, the conclusion then must be there is no God. That's how that argument unfolds. And in the class that I was at, that was kind of how it unfolded. Second, there's the Old Testament argument. These same people will then point to the Old Testament, and their objection there goes like this. Well, the God of the Old Testament is just angry and vengeful, killing people all the time. That's sort of the argument that's put forward. He's violent, and he promotes the killings of thousands and thousands of people, all uh, due to his angry and violent nature. I could never, therefore, believe in a God like that. And, of course, we're now taking the moral high ground, aren't we? Right? Look at me, you know, moral righteousness. Where does that come from? But that's part of the argument. Now, before we look at the truth about who the God of the Old Testament is and the New Testament for that matter, do you see the contradiction that might be there? Because there is a contradiction there. There really is a contradiction. In the first case, the solution to the problem of evil and suffering in this world from the skeptical atheist perspective would be for God to show up right now today and deal with it right? That, that would be the solution. I mean, if God is all-loving and, and perfect and holy God, and there's evil, which we all see and we recognize that it does exist, well, then where is he? Why doesn't he just show up and deal with it? Good question. It's a really good question. The fact that apparently he does not is their evidence that he does not exist. Now, in the second case, the fact that he does show up and punish evil is called into question, right? In the Old Testament, he does show up and punishes evil, and it's like, well, he's angry, he's violent, right? He shouldn't be like that. I can't believe in a God like that. It's a contradiction building here, I would suggest to you. You see, most who accuse God of the Old Testament of the things that I've just listed are sadly unaware that the Philistines and the Canaanites, all of the Steens and all of the Ites for that matter, were really evil people. They are the kind of people who today we would be going, Lord, they're flying airplanes into buildings. Why are you not showing up and punishing them? That's what God of the Old Testament did. So let's expose this contradiction for what it really is. And let me ask it, in a way that I kind of did to one young man who followed me out of Quest University on that day, and I posed it to him this way. If God were to show up today, and let's not discuss all the free will issues that you and I fight for and want to have, right, and are real, if he were to show up right now, what would be your choice in recent history for the kind of evil that he should punish right now? Like, would you say, well, it's not recent, but Hitler... Like, definitely put him up there, right? This young man agreed with me. Well, what about those who, you know, 9-11? What about in Canada, like Paul Bernardo, who's up for parole in a few weeks? I don't know if all of you know about this man, but what, what about that type of person? Now, many people, I think, would say, well, yeah, okay, look, we could make a list. I, there's a, a list that I would approve uh, for, for sure. Now, please hear this, though, because it must be asked. Where's the bar? Where's the line? 
that you want him to stop at, that I want him to stop at before he gets to me. Just think about it. So finally, there's one last aspect of this problem of evil in our world today, because there's a problem of evil in our world today, right? There is a huge problem with evil, especially today. And it's highly ironic, I think, as I was looking at it, it's sad actually, when you think about it, and it is this, our culture's fashion, fascination with evil, right? Now, I know in a few weeks, some of you are going to dress your kitties up like Star Wars characters and take them out for All Hallowed Eve, but when I was a kid, there was, there was no messing with it. We, we all knew that we wanted to go like the devil or like witches and goblins. And that's what Halloween was all about. I mean, there was even a cartoon series on television called Casper the Friendly Ghost. Anybody? Like, I know I'm old, but that, it was, he was so cute. Like, they made him really friendly. He was wonderful, really. He was harmless. I mean, just a ghost. It's like just fantasy. Doesn't really exist, does he? Well, from there, all of a sudden in the 60s and 70s, we noticed this. There were movies like Rosemary's Baby, The Shining, The Exorcist. I went to a Catholic boys Jesuit high school when this movie came out. Jesuit priests in the Catholic church are the exorcist. That movie scared the death out of me. It also celebrated evil. It celebrated evil. Then there was the Omen series. Today we even have a series on television called Lucifer. There's a series on TV. And of course, there are those seemingly harmless fantasies that still display a fascination with evil, or as Star Wars calls it, the dark side. Fascination. And of course, I can't let it go unsaid. There's Harry Potter and all kinds of other series about spiritualities and good witches and bad witches, and on and on it goes. We have a fascination with this. Video games. I don't even want to get into the titles in that area that I researched, many of which you probably don't know about. It's horrendous. Call of Duty, killing people on screen? Don't worry about that. It's bad. Some of the horror genre, and of course there's Stephen King, and the outright horror movies. So there's a fascination going on in our culture. So listen, what, what, I, what I hope for us to see today is this. There's a problem of evil. This text that we're reading here today, this story is about God dealing with the problem of evil today. So let's unpack it. Your sermon title for today, long-winded introduction, it's important, is the problem of evil answered three points. Number one, the power of evil. Number two, the power of Jesus. And number three, two responses to the power of Jesus. Number one, the power of evil. Then they sailed to the country of the Gerasenes, which is opposite Galilee. When Jesus had stepped out on land, there met him a man from the city who had demons. For a long time he had worn no clothes, and he had not lived in a house but among the tombs. So this is now, following on after last week, this is chronological in the Bible and in the life of Jesus and the disciples. They've just gone through the storm where Jesus displayed his power over nature. 
spoke it calm, quiet, and instantly it was. And now they've kind of changed course or were put off course, one would expect, to the southeast area of the Sea of Galilee, to the land of the Gentile pagan Gerasenes. And then what we're introduced to right away in the story is a man, just a man. We don't ever find out his name. He's a man. He's a human being. We never learn his name, but it appears, it appears he's waiting on the shore, waiting there for Jesus to arrive. And as Jesus gets into the boat, we learn several things about him here. We learn that he's from the city. Uh, there is a group of 10 cities called the Decapolis, which was the main trading area of the Gerasenes. And so, of course, as we see in the story, they're raising bacon, right? they're raising pork, and it's mainly not for the Jewish people unless it's on the sly, right? This is for the Gerasenes, for the people in the Decapolis, the Gentile Roman pagans that lived in this area. He has demons. The story declares clearly that he has been possessed by demons. He's naked, and, and he's been without clothes for a long time. He's homeless, or at least he doesn't have a home like a structure, a house, but he lives among the tombs. In other words, he lives where the dead live. This man is the walking dead, and he's a picture of that. Please remember that. So most of us for here today, I think this, this kind of sounds familiar, but also a bit foreign. I think most of us have known some street people, right? Uh, who kind of have an imaginary friend and they're kind of walking along in downtown east side of Vancouver and they're talking to that friend, right? When I grew up in Toronto, just a block and a half away from the city of Young Street in North Toronto, uh, there was a man in our neighborhood, we called him Crazy Bob. Sorry, but that's what we called him. We were 12, 14-year-old boys, brainless, but that's what we called him. He was Crazy Bob, right? And he would walk along and you'd walk behind him. We'd, we'd kinda, we'd, we just got a kick out of it, right? Be walking behind him and he's just talking to his imaginary friend, and, you know, he was some violent. Some can get that way. But he was just talking away and talking to people. And, and a couple of times, he was actually taken to 99 Queen Street East. Now, believe it or not, I still remember that from 45, 50 years ago, that there was a place in Toronto, a mental institution. We called it the Looney Bin, right? These are the things we called it. We called it things like this. Uh, the Looney Bin, it was a mental institution, a nut house. 99 Queen Street East. He'd been there a few times. I had an uncle, my mother's brother, uh, my uncle Bernie, he'd been to 99 Queen Street East a few times, actually put in straight jackets before they took him there. And the, the, the treatment, of course, uh, at that time was, you know, tried to give some psychological treatment, maybe medication and drugs, which is a pretty big idea today. But also in that day, electrical shock treatment. It shocked the brain, and that's apparently going to fix this person. My uncle Bernie had that three times. And I got to tell you, each time that he came back to our house, he was a harmless guy, harmless man. He died in his early 50s. Um, but each time he came back from that place after being electrically shocked, he was less of a man and less of a man and less of a man. It was extremely, extremely sad. No time when I was growing up did anyone ever say, well, maybe it's a demon. Like, that's just not acceptable out there today. Is that acceptable? Is it acceptable for you, for me, to be able to go, whoa, 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 wait a second, there could be demonic activity here. We're going to be careful about this, but, but that needs to be put on the table. 
Psychologists and sociologists today, when attempting to explain the, the actions of mass murderers, terrorists, etc., point to everything but the possibility of demonic activity. Instead, it's environmental, it's social. Um, these are the kind of things that have contributed to this person's madness or difficulties and challenges. Well, our text is very clear here today. This man had demons. Minions of the devil himself who literally possessed this man. And so Luke, now remember this, the doctor who used to be a pagan skeptic is not writing this in any way, shape, or form with a question mark. No, he's writing this like this is really what happened. He records it. So now as we've noted, we, not, we don't learn this man's name but he, I use that word cautiously, knew who Jesus was, right? He knew who Jesus was. Our text goes on in verse 28 and says, When he saw Jesus, he cried out and fell down before him and with a loud voice said, What have you to do with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I beg you, do not torment me. Oh, there's a lot in that. We don't have a lot of time today to unpack all of it, but... Like, first, from the shore, look at this, he sees Jesus, then literally in the Greek, it's a shriek, it, it's, a, it's, a, it's a haunting, shrieking sound that we, when he calls out to Jesus with this loud voice, you can just imagine it's a, a hideousness that is coming out of this man. They don't need Hollywood to help us with this. This is legit. This was a shriek that was coming out of this man. He falls down at Jesus' feet, screaming. So isn't it interesting that he already knows who Jesus is, but also what he's going to do? That's incredibly interesting. And of course, he does. And how, you ask? How does this guy know who Jesus is? Or these guys know who Jesus is and what he's going to do? How is that possible? Well, let's remember when all of this started and what has happened since Jesus arrived on the scene. You know where this all started, right? It started in the beginning. It started in Genesis. God creates the heavens and the earth, and every day he adds to his creation, and it's good, and it's good, and it's good, and it's good. And in the sixth day, he creates Adam and Eve, man and woman, male and female, and he goes, it is very good. I can't believe we added to it that much. But the fact is he created all the rest of it for us to enjoy him in. And so he creates that. God, God actually creates that. He offers them all they need, all they need in terms of food. It was an all-you-can-eat smorgasbord. All, just go pick off of the trees and eat what you want all day long, right? They, they, they had the perfect climate and they were, this is important, naked. It was warm. They were in a perfect relationship with each other and a holy God and there was no shame or guilt because they were naked. They had perfect relationship, but they had one restriction. God said just one thing, one, do not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and what? Evil. One. Everybody, how many of you have children? Just, just one thing, okay? Like, don't touch the stove when it's on. Like, 
One thing we were given, they already knew all the good that God had offered. They knew everything about God that was perfect and wonderful, everything that today we would beg to have like that again. Amen? They had it all. They already knew this. But Satan arrives on the scene, the fallen angel, and he calls in to question God's word. They bite, pun intended, and evil not only is known to them, but it ruins everything. All of God's creation is ruined because of their act. Now hear this. Hear this skeptic. We did this. Not God. We caused evil to come into our world and to be part of our lives. Well, now after this bite of this apple, they know they're naked and they're ashamed. And the first thing they've got to do is cover themselves up, right? All creation is broken because of this. We have done this, not God. But then, but then God in his mercy and his grace, right then in the garden at that time before he casts them out, he decides to save us. And here's how he describes to Satan, to the serpent, how he's going to do it. In Genesis 3.15, he says this, speaking to Satan, God Almighty, I will put enmity. I'll put a division between you and the woman, not Eve, but a woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. This is the first prophecy in the Bible of God talking about a virgin woman, a woman who will give birth to the Son of God who will now deal ultimately with the problem of evil. Fast forward to Jesus at 30 years of age. A lot has gone on. God has done a lot in the Old Testament battling the problem of evil and even in the beginning of the New Testament of the birth of Jesus. But he's 30 years old. He's been baptized. And what at that point in time does the Holy Spirit of God decide to do with Jesus? Say, yeah, good, it's, you're, you're ready, let's go to the cross. Let's just deal with that. Right? No. He, he takes them into the wilderness to fast for 40 days and to 40 nights, and then he is tempted by who? By Satan. Satan himself, for 40 days and 40 nights, he is given the exact same test that Adam and Eve are given. The final test is, I will give you all of the kingdoms of this world, Satan says to him. I'll give you it all. You won't have to go to the cross. It's awesome. I'll give it to you now. If, just one thing, just one thing, you will bow down and worship me. Jesus re rejects the offer, amen? He is victorious where Adam and Eve failed. This is what the Messiah, according to the Old Testament, had to do. He did. The problem of evil is already defeated, by the way, on that day, ultimately defeated on the cross of Jesus Christ, and will one day ultimately be eradicated from God's presence and from ours, if you are in Christ here today. That'll be a good day, right? So why is all of this important here? Well, first, it clearly demonstrates that God is, has, and will deal with the problem of evil correct? It, he is dealing with it. But secondly, it tells us how these demons knew. 
News travels fast in that realm, by the way. They've known this story since before any of you were even imaginations in your parents' minds. They've known this story for thousands of years. They, they know what's going to happen. They know that Jesus one day is going to throw them all into the abyss and torment them forever. They, they have a limited period of time to work on you and me. That's why this is important. So Luke adds a follow-up detail that was missing at the beginning, but it's interesting, and I've read it earlier, but so we see it, look at it. For he commanded, so Jesus had commanded the unclean spirit to come out of the man. For many a time it had seized him, he was kept under guard and bound with chains, but he would break the bonds and be driven by the demon into the desert. So Jesus didn't waste any time, did he? He gets out of the boat, he assesses the situation, he doesn't do any counseling, there's no drugs, there's no electrical shock to Well, it was kind of a shocking thing that happened. He commanded, one word, leave this man. Cuts right to the chase. He commands the unclean spirit to come out of the man. And the details that follow are frightening, aren't they? Come on. These demons had such a hold on this man that while they seized him, no one or nothing else could seize him, right? They actually gave him supernatural, unnatural power so that he could break loose of the chains. That happens today, you know in places in the world where demonic activity is celebrated and embraced. And of course, in North American culture and in us enlightened people, we're like, well, that, you know, that doesn't really happen here. And so, you know, like, let me, this is an aside to this today. I, I think the enemy knows this. He's got a good here. And he's less showy as he is in other parts of the world, because he is in other parts of the world, friends. Missionaries see it all the time. But he's less showy here because we don't really think he exists. We're not mindful of him. Whether it's in our culture or in our own hearts and lives. And so these demons had seized him, but they, he could not, he could not extricate himself from, listen, the bonds and shackles of the demons themselves. They drove him into a world of his own. Once again, this is why Jesus had to come isn't it? Again, all the Old Testament prophecies, the teachings of the Messiah, the Jewish people would have had to have known this. The Messiah has to deal with this. The Messiah has to deal with the devil, with the problem of evil. And so remember when Jesus preached in his home synagogue back in Luke, right? Earlier in Luke chapter 4, he, he gets up, he asks for the scroll from Isaiah, and they give it to him, and he begins to read it, and he says this, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me because He has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Remember how they responded? At first, like, what an eloquent preacher. He's awesome. Then when they realized that He was speaking about them, it changed, didn't it? Because they understood him rightfully to be saying, you, all of you listening to me right now in the hearing of this reading, all of you are the poor. All of you are the captives, the blind, the oppressed. I have come to save you from all of the evil of sin that all of you are in bondage to. What was their response now? To kill him. They tried to, right? They tried to kill Jesus. 
And so here we see ourselves today. We see this man, right? We, we, we are like this man in the sense that we are powerful, powerless pardon me, to free ourselves from sin's bondage and oppression. And we need exactly what this man needed. Number two, the power of Jesus Christ. Jesus then asked him, what's your name? What's your name? And the man said, Legion. For many demons had entered him, and they begged him not to command them to depart into the abyss. Now a large herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside, and they begged him to let them enter these. So he gave them permission. Gave them permission. So here's the chain of events, just one more time, quickly. Jesus departs from the boat. The possessed man is there on the shore. Jesus commands the unclean spirit to come out of the man. The man then responds angrily, or something in the man responds, what have you to do with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I beg you, do not torment me. And to that, Jesus asks, what's your name? This, has, this has stumped, actually, some scholars. When people read this, they're, 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 they're wondering, well, okay, the man's possessed by demons, is, is, is Jesus want to know, like, okay, which demon am I talking to? Like, name yourself or whatever, because we, we see that one of the demons does name themselves. No. Jesus comes for each one of us personally, does he not? We don't get to know this man's name in the story, but Jesus asked him for his name. He was so oppressed and so possessed, he couldn't speak for himself, and so the demons did. The demons answered. So this is interesting. The problem with this kind of text here today is taken two turns in our world and our culture. Most people in our culture, and even in the church today, are kind of like, well, okay, we don't want to talk about that. I thought of making this a PG-13 message today, <laughs> right? Uh, we don't want to talk about this, but there's others who are like, well, yeah. You know, what we need to do is we need to go out there and start casting out demons. <laughs> you, you want to be really careful about that, and I want to give you a little passage of Scripture just, to, just as a warning, right? In Acts chapter 19, you might remember that, also written by Dr. Luke, the story of the, the burgeoning success of the early church, right? We, we read about the sons of Sceva, some, some Jewish exorcists. Now, another little aside, quick note. In the Old Testament, you won't read much about exorcisms. Jewish people didn't practice exorcism. There wasn't, there wasn't the idea of exorcising demons. That, that became known more in when? The times of Jesus. Why? Because the Son of the Most High God is on the earth. And they know what's coming. So the activity got ramped up. Well, some of them are there, and they're, they're, they're seeing what the Apostle Paul is doing. He's casting out demons. So they're like, well, like, this is magic. We can just, they're just casting out the demons in Jesus' name. Come out right? So they go out and start doing this. It's crazy. Here's what Luke records. But the evil spirit answered them, listen, Jesus I know, and Paul I know, but who are you? Look what happens. And the man in whom was the evil spirit leapt on them, mastered all of them, overpowered them, so that they fled of that house, what? Naked. Seems to be a recurring theme. Let me put it this way. I'll bet they never did that again. Got to be careful about that kind of thing today. That's not what this teaching's about. This is about Jesus and the power that Jesus Christ has. 
So listen, friends, Jesus was asking the man his name. Simple as that. And, and that is beautiful to see, I would suggest. But one of the demons in the man would have none, so he, none of that. So he replies, legion. Now, the Greek word literally means it was related to the Roman military, and it literally means Roman. I mean, there were 2,000 pigs, Mark tells us. There were 2,000 pigs in that herb. So it's at least 2,000 demons in this man is what we're being told, but a legion can be up to 6,000. Like the, the point is, this man was possessed by thousands of demons. So some people think, well, it's just the guy with the pitchfork, you know, like there's just him to worry about. no. He has millions and millions of fallen angels like himself who are his minions and doing his work. Now, just for a moment, again, I don't want to try to get too imaginary, but can you imagine this man's torment and pain? I, I, I know many have suffered depression. I know many have suffered various issues in our lives where it feels like, like there's no light at the end of the tunnel. This is an extreme case, is it not? But it's a picture for us of ourselves too. So once again, the demons plead with Jesus for him not to deal with them now. They, they know it's coming one day, but they want to stick around and torment a few more people, a few more of us, if they can. And they come up with this brilliant plan. Okay, there's these, these 2,000 pigs here. Send us into them. That's their, their plan. And, and so Jesus just gives them permission. He goes, okay, off you go. And they go. Verse 33 tells us, Then the demons came out of the man and entered the pigs. And the herd rushed down the steep bank into the lake and drowned. So Jesus gave them permission, didn't he? He did. The question is, why? Why? Now, does Jesus not care about the pigs? Some, some people have... That's another skeptic question. Oh, yeah, so you see, Jesus... Like, that's why we as human beings, we don't treat animals very well. That's why you're not all vegans. You know, no, that's not the case. Of course Jesus cares. But this was the reason they asked for it. He gave them permission, and the reason was obvious. This would clearly demonstrate two things. One, this man had demons. Two, they're now not in him anymore. Right? Pretty clear. It's pretty obvious. They're now there, and these pigs will have none of it. They run down the hill. So, number three, and as we conclude, the responses to Jesus. How are you responding right now to this? Let's see how those in that day who were literally there responded to this. It goes on to say in verse 34 and 35, when the herdsmen, the guys who owned these pigs, saw what had happened. They fled and told it in the city and in the country. Then people went out to see what had happened, and they came to Jesus and found the man from whom the demons had gone, sitting at the feet of Jesus, clothed and in his right mind. And they were afraid. <laughs> Come on, some of the people from the city must have been related to this guy. You don't think someone is going to go when he's sitting there at the foot of Jesus, which is a picture of someone worshiping Jesus. Don't you think some of them are going to go, praise God, look at him. He's, he's been healed. Doesn't need chains anymore, and he's not naked. I don't do like it. That's not their response. It's pretty sad. Their response is, is fear. So, so first, the garrisons, the people in the city and the country, they hear the report from the herdsmen, and they come running, of course. They find the man who they knew is 
crazy tomb guy, right? With, with clean clothes on, sitting at the feet of Jesus, a Jewish rabbi in his right mind, and their response is fear. Fear. Why? We read further. And those who had seen it told them how the demon-possessed man had been healed. Then all the people of the surrounding country of the Gerasenes asked him to depart from them, for they were seized with great fear. This has now gone from, I'm afraid, this has gone to mega fear in the language. So he got into the boat and returned. This is a sad picture right here. They're afraid of Jesus. Why? What are they doing? What are they doing in this picture? They're rejecting him, friends. What does Jesus do when he's rejected? He gets in the boat and he goes away. It's amazing how just a few weeks ago, Jesus had been preaching the parable of the soils. Everything he does is intentional. Everything that God does is showing us a picture of who he is, what he has done, who we then are, and how then we should live. In the parable of the soils, there are three soils who will not be part of the harvest. The hard soil, right? The rocky ground, the thorny soil, they're all rejecting Jesus. There's only one. And in this picture, there's one man. Why did he stick around, do you think? There are other people that Jesus has healed, thousands that he's healed in these days, and this man sticks around. It's a beautiful picture. It's a beautiful picture of what Jesus can do for just one human being, just one person. So some scholars, again, commentators, are kind of puzzled about what's going on here. Like, you know, like, why did they reject Jesus? Was, was, it, was it an economic issue? Like, that's a lot of bacon, okay? 2,000 pigs, you just cost me all that business. Some commentators and preachers kind of go that way. They, they want to go that direction because they, they want to put some kind of human rationale on it. And I, I guess you could do that if you wanted to do. But sadly, no, the truth is they experienced the same thing that Peter did back in Luke 5.8 when he's in the presence of a holy and righteous God sitting there right in the boat while Jesus is preaching to the crowd. And Peter says to Jesus, depart from me, O Lord, for I am a sinner. Being in the very presence of the power of Jesus, for some people, friends, sadly, is rejection. I don't want my sins brought to light. I'm okay with them, quite frankly. I'll, I'll let the scales balance out in the end. I'm okay with, hey, I'm not as bad as those people. I'm, I'm not as wicked as those evil people that you should be dealing with. hard soil. Finally, another response, which is beautiful. The man from whom the demons had gone begged that he might be with him. You think so? <laughs> like if you were there, if that was you and you were there, and, and that was you that Jesus had healed from that, and Jesus was about to get in the boat because these people didn't want anything to do with him, would you not be going, can I please stay with you just a little longer? I know, I, I read this, remember the first time I ever read this, I was like, yeah. Take me with you. I don't want to stay here. What if those demons come back? You know? Not this guy. 
But Jesus sent him away, saying, Return to your home and declare how much God has done for you. And he went, and he went away, obediently, proclaiming throughout the whole city how much Jesus had done for him. I love this. I think I'm saying this every week about these stories, but I really love this. As Jesus gets into the boat, the man whom he'd freed from demons begs him to go with him. But Jesus is always, listen, the picture here is this, Jesus is always on mission. The Spirit of the Lord has sent me. He's anointed me. You go home. You proclaim to the people in the Decapolis who just rejected me. You go to them. What did Jesus just do with this man? He gave him the heart of a missionary, didn't he? To be light in the midst of darkness, which we saw two weeks ago. He turns this kind of a guy. Now, I don't want to mention any names here, but actually I heard one preacher main. Can you imagine Jesus choosing Charlie Manson? Do you think he has any demons? Jesus chose this man. Dr. Luke came to faith, many people believe, through the ministry of the Apostle Paul. What was Paul before he became a follower of Jesus Christ? He was a murderer. Of Christians. So the problem of evil, I want to suggest to you today, has, is being dealt with by our God and Savior. He will one day deal with it once and for all. Oh, what a wonderful day that will be, right? In the meantime, we must battle evil. Every single one of us must battle evil. The demons that oppress us today, and listen, here's a good start for you. You all know this, but none of us practice it. I was required to practice it as a little Catholic boy growing up. There's your Our Fathers and your Hail Marys, right? When Jesus was asked by his disciples, how do we pray? How do we pray and have God be with us like he's with you? Right? Jesus said, well, don't pray like the hypocrites, but pray like this. Our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come as it is in heaven to earth. And then he said these words. Give us this day our daily bread. I've said this many times. This is supposed to be a daily prayer. You're not Catholic or turning into a Catholic if you do that. You're, you're doing what Jesus said. Pray this prayer. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also forgive our debtors. And look at this. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Last week, we saw Jesus display his power over nature. The Messiah needed to do that. Today, we've seen that Jesus has dealt with the problem of evil. Next week, we get to see two in one. Jesus dealing with the power, his power over sickness and, oh boy, death. It's going to be exciting. Pray with me, would you?